So we're moving our way through the Gospel of John. We're in these exciting chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, where Jesus gives the last instructions to the disciples, really, before He's going to go to the cross. He dwells on some of the most important things that they need to know in uh, being as how they're going to be getting along without Him, although the Holy Spirit will be there with them. And so, naturally, the more He talks about His death, the more concerned they get, and so Chapter 14 begins with him telling them, let not your heart be troubled. We talked on Sunday morning about the same word later on in the chapter, um, the idea of your heart being agitated or stirred up, just having a lack of peace. And so he says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. So he says, don't worry. I have things under control. Don't let yourself get worked up. Don't let yourself get all upset about things, about me leaving in particular. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, he's not saying here's God and here's me, you need to believe in both of us. But it's a clear statement, and boy, he goes on through these next couple of chapters. I don't think he could be clearer about it. But he's saying, look, you you believe in God, don't you understand? I'm God. I'm not, I am no more in danger than God is. There isn't anything that this world can put out there, no threats, no hazards that are going to trip me up. If you believe in God, believe in me also because I am God. And then in my Father's house are many mansions. Now, the word for mansions isn't necessarily what we think of as a mansion. When we think of a mansion, we think of something that's this magnificent and expensive house up on a hill and, or maybe on the cliffs overlooking the ocean or something, at least something as nice as what the Beverly Hillbillies lived in. But... The word here really, it's translated mansions because the idea is, man, we're going to have great houses when we're in heaven. But it's really just a word for dwelling places. Now, there are those who believe that this is talking about just the places that we're going to live in when we're in heaven. And that could easily be the case. But there's also a possibility that what he's actually referring to is our new bodies, the bodies that we're going to dwell in. But at any rate, he's saying, look, in my father's house, you're taken care of. And I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to, to go and make sure that as I go first, I've opened the way for you to go to heaven. And if I go, I'm going to come again so that you can be with me. And you know where I'm going and you know the way. Now, basically, he's saying, okay, I'm going away. I'm going to be preparing the way for you to come where I am. And that's actually what he's doing right now. You know, Jesus is, uh, yeah, is the sound kind of funny? We're working on it today. So I don't know if you can give me some more gain. Okay. As long as you can hear, Kevin, we're, we're cool. <laughs> but uh, the idea is, he's, well, Jesus today, for is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. If he were not doing that, the path wouldn't be open for us to go to be with him. And so Jesus is kind of saying, look, I'm preparing the way, and you know what I'm talking about. 
but they actually didn't know what he was talking about. And think about it, you, if you don't know much, and the disciples were sort of clueless, and Jesus is saying, you believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place, I'll come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and whether I go, you know the way you know. It's like, what? What are you talking about? And so Thomas pipes up and says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? I love that Thomas did this. Wow, we're having fun tonight. <laughs> we spent the whole afternoon working on the sound system, and we got some things fixed, but there are other issues that are still there. So just pretend like it's not happening. And then the people who are listening on the Internet, you know, we can say, no, it was fine at church. <laughs> Thomas was the kind of guy who, if he didn't know what was going on, he would ask a question. He, unfortunately, has got the name Doubting Thomas. That's his nickname. Why? Because that one time, after Jesus had risen from the dead, and he showed up, and, and the disciples were there except for Thomas, and they told Thomas, Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it until I see him with my own eyes, until I put my finger into the holes in the palms of his hands, I'm not going to believe that he's there. And so because of that one question that he had, the, the evidence that he was demanding, we call him Doubting Thomas. And we treat him as if he's someone who's inferior. But you know, what I see of Thomas is he's just really an honest guy. And really, if people say somebody rose from the dead and you've never seen that happen, you can't fault him for going, I'd like a little more evidence. And personally, I think that when we question God, when we just go, well, I don't know about that, he doesn't get all freaked out. In fact, he loves to, to confirm to us what his will is. And I don't think that Jesus at all took Thomas's comments as being offensive. And here we see Thomas's, all the other disciples are sitting there pretending like they understand what Jesus is talking about. And Thomas is the guy who raises his hand and goes, we don't know what you're talking about. Now, again, nobody else wanted to do that, but somebody had to ask the question. Now, there's an old expression, they say in school, that there's no such thing as a stupid question. I don't believe that. I've heard a lot of stupid questions. But for the most part, if you don't know something, it's stupid not to ask. Because even though everyone else around you is pretending like they get it, they may not. They may have the same question that you have. At the same time, if you're just always asking questions and everyone else is giving you the answer, maybe you're just stupid and you need to ask someone privately. But I remember there was a guy at, at Biola when I was there who asked, we had classes, some of the Bible classes had 600 people or more in them. And this guy would always sit up near the front and his, his hand would just be popping up constantly asking questions. Finally, the teacher put a limit on him and said, you can only ask two questions per day. And, and so, sure enough, five minutes into class, his hand would go up and the teacher goes, okay, this is one, what? <laughs> and and uh, one time, we had, the teacher was sick and he sent his wife in with a tape recording of the lecture and he put it on and within a couple of minutes, this guy's hand went up. But I don't think Thomas was like that. Remember, this is the same guy we just saw a few chapters ago. When Jesus is saying, it was in chapter 11 when Lazarus had died, or he was sick at the time, and Jesus said he's going to head down towards Jerusalem to, to the house of Lazarus and 
Mary and Martha there in Bethany. And the other disciples were going, you know, that's, they're going to kill you, don't you know? They're, they've got a contract out on your head. And Thomas is the guy who said, come on, let's go with him. Let's all die together. Maybe a little cynical, but certainly not this wimp that would be, I don't know, I need more proof. The idea we have of Thomas really isn't the way Thomas really was. But I like here that he's honest enough to just go, we don't know what you're talking about. And, and so Jesus said, let me explain it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. So Jesus says, you think you don't know where I'm going, and you're right. You kind of don't. You tell me you don't know the way. Yeah, you're, there's a lot you don't understand. But he says, what you need to do is just know me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You don't have to find all truth. What you have to do is find me. You don't have to find the whole pathway as it goes along. Follow me. And, and you don't need to figure out what life is all about. Just find me and you'll find life. And so, of course, this scripture, John 14, 6, is an important scripture to remember and to keep in mind when people claim that there are a whole lot of different ways to get to God. That you can kind of all roads lead to God, all religions are basically going the same way. Well, not according to Jesus. He says, and I, it's not something I'm making up, he says, no, the only way to get to the Father is through me. And other places in John, he said, I'm the door. And so, again, here he's emphasizing to the disciples, if you know me, your eternity is fine. You're going to be okay. Again, let not your heart be troubled. Don't get yourself all stirred up. Later on in the chapter, as we saw on Sunday morning, as we studied those verses, he said, you know, I don't want you to be troubled because I'm going to give my peace to you. Well, the peace comes ultimately as the Holy Spirit works in us, but it's also all about heaven. It's like, look, don't get all worked up because we're all going to heaven someday. Don't get upset about things. Don't get too overly concerned because the fact is everything that you're worrying about today will be gone when heaven comes. When the Lord comes back for us or when we die and go to be with the Lord, you're really not going to care that your roof was leaking at one point. It doesn't need to upset you so much or that you were arguing with someone else or that you know, the sound system wasn't working right. Is it really going to matter in heaven? Is it really going to matter for eternity? And I think when, we, when our heart is troubled, it's not a bad thing for us to go, wait a minute. Heaven is being prepared for me. God has a place for me. I'm going to go be there with him. Could happen any time. All it takes is one bad day and you're there. And I know him. And because I know him, I know I'm secure. I know where I'm going. I know that he's going to take care of me. And so great comfort and some powerful truth. And again, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. It's impossible to know the father without knowing the son because no one has seen the father. God is spirit. And, and so seeing the father is not something probably that we will ever do. But seeing Jesus is seeing the Father because he's the exact representation of the Father. 
And so it could, Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you've known the Father. You can't get to know the Father without going through the Son. I'm the way, the truth, the life. At the same time, if you really get to know Jesus, you'll end up knowing the Father. You don't have to say, Jesus, teach us how to know the Father, as he's going to say here just in the next verse. Philip suggests that. Don't worry. Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. And so what that does is make our task really simple, ultimately. Our job in life, the driving desire of our heart should just be to know Jesus. Should just be to focus on him. As it, as it says in uh, Hebrews 12 in the beginning of the chapter, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, how do you get to know Jesus? He says we fellowship with him by the Spirit. We also, I believe, study the Bible, not just the Gospels. The Gospels are a good place to start, but the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Later, we'll see the two disciples that Jesus is walking along with after he rose from the dead, and they didn't recognize him. For some reason, their eyes were blinded, and he went through the whole scriptures with them and taught them how that it was all about him. And then they said, man, how our hearts burned within us. Right before that, Jesus has said, you guys are slow of heart. Later, their hearts were burning. Why? Because they were seeing Jesus in the scriptures. And so it's a great thing for us to do to say, okay, my work's cut out for me. My job is to become more like Jesus, to get to understand him more. As he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That's our job. And it's amazing to me how much we can do in life that has nothing to do with Jesus. Frankly, how much can be done in the name of the church or in the name of religion that really isn't about Jesus. We can get so caught up in bureaucracy. We can get so tangled up in all sorts of issues and and questions and not bring it back to Jesus. It's about him, and he made that really clear. But Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. All we want to do is see the Father. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves." Now this gets confusing. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. The works I do, I'm doing the works of the Father. I say what he says. And yet he keeps reversing it too so that there's this unity between the Father and the Son that we can't readily understand or explain. It's how does it work? How do you? And then you put the Spirit in there and you have this trinity and I don't believe that we're capable of completely understanding it. As soon as you start thinking you understand the Trinity, you're probably watering it down. What, what do we know? We know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct. We know that it's not just a system of modalism, which is where sometimes God dresses up like the Father, sometimes like the Son, sometimes like the Spirit. That's an easy way of understanding it, but it's wrong. It's not Clark Kent and Superman. 
Because Clark Kent and Superman never show up at the same place, but at Jesus' baptism, the voice of the Father is coming from heaven, Jesus is being baptized, and the Holy Spirit is, is coming down on him as a dove. These are three distinct persons, and yet there's only one God. They're all the Godhead. Whenever one of them is working, they're all working. In creation, we see the role of all of them. The Bible says that, well, it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth, but it also says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters as it was happening. And we learn in the book of Colossians that everything that was made was made by Jesus. And so they're all working together, and Jesus is explaining this to them best he could, but their level of understanding doesn't totally grasp it, and neither does ours. But just believe this. There is as close of a fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit as there could possibly be. And the glorious thing, as we read on, we find out that he wants to include us in that fellowship. As another member of the Godhead, no, we have too many issues for that. But he wants to include us. They're over there in, in Colossians 2, where it talks about in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily form. And then it says, and in him you are made complete. It's the same word for fullness in the Greek. And so he wants to include us in this fellowship that they have. And basically he goes, you need to believe me. Most assuredly, verse 12, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he'll do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Wow, what a promise. If you, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Greater works than these. How in the world could anyone do greater works than what Jesus did? He brought people back from the dead. He was healing lepers. He healed people who had been blind from birth lame from birth. He ultimately raised himself from the dead. How can anyone do greater works than these? Well, there's a considerable amount of debate on that question, but I'd suggest to you at least in one way, because that which God is doing today through his church is affecting more people than were ever affected in the first century. Jesus mostly hang, hung out in, in a fairly small neighborhood in a fairly small area of the world, and ultimately most of the people who followed him ended up sort of rejecting him. And so today, when you look at how many people have accepted the Lord and are walking with him, it's miraculous, it's amazing. But also, the, the greatness of the work is partly determined by the vehicle who's performing the work. Now, if you see a little child who's three years old and they can do, you know, they can just do magnificent things, sit down at a piano and play like a beautiful uh, piece of music and you go, it's amazing. But you go, that's nothing. I know a professional pianist who can play much better than that. Yeah, but this kid's three years old, see? And so the fact that God can work through us, it's a greater miracle than the fact that God through his son Jesus Christ can do things because of who we are. I mean, the fact that we get anything done, the fact that we ever see God use us is an amazing miracle. And Jesus is saying, yeah, it's gonna be greater. And you know, if, if I can bring more glory to God by the fact that 
I'm a flawed person and he uses me anyway, then great, that's fine. Oh man, I look at, I think I'm bad, but I know a lot of people that God uses who are way worse than I am. So should I go, why does God do that? Or should I just go, man, God's amazing. If you see someone that you think has less ability and talent than you do and God's using them anyway, don't criticize them, don't put them down. Just go, man, God is great. Look what he's doing. Look who he's using. And so Jesus is making this clear. To ask something in his name, it doesn't just mean to say in Jesus' name. We're told over and over again to pray in Jesus' name. And so we use that as kind of a, you know, sincerely yours at the end of our prayer. We don't see any prayers in the scriptures where they're closed off that way. Um, We've missed the point somewhat. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in his authority. And that means, and the emphasis here is on being so in such close fellowship with him that we're plugged into who he is and therefore we're asking for the things that he's speaking to us. Remember, as he's talking about the works, he emphasizes that the Father works through him, that what he does, the Father is actually doing. And so it's important that we just plug into him, that we rely on him, that we depend on him. And then as we allow him to work through us, then we're praying in his name. There are all kinds of people who do things supposedly in the name of someone, and yet it really doesn't represent them. If you've ever been around large corporations or, or political organizations, you, you find out that there are all sorts of people who are claiming the authority of their boss, and yet in reality, they're not representing them. And there are a lot of people who do this with the Lord. I tell you, in the name of Jesus, you're going to fry. You're going to, you know, and, and just screaming and yelling at people and claiming to be in the name of Jesus. Out there again, you know, parading and protesting and, and, and raising a ruckus in the name of Jesus. That's not in the name of Jesus. If it's not something that Jesus would do, it's not in the name of Jesus. And so dwelling with him, being close to him, being in fellowship with him, as the Holy Spirit works within us, he gives us the heart of our Lord. And as we get more and more the heart of our Lord, then what we do is in the name of Jesus. The things we pray about, we're tuned into him. This isn't about me getting my will from God. This is about me being so closely in touch with God that his will becomes my will. And when that happens, I'm free to ask And he's going to answer because my heart is in touch with his. And I'm asking it really in his name. It's really something that he himself would ask. It's one of the reasons why I think when we pray, it's good to sometimes pray some of the prayers of the Bible because we know those are inspired by God. We know that those are, are some that he approves of, and so therefore they are in his name. So if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, You might say, boy, I've been asking for things and God hasn't done it. Well, here's the test. If you're asking for things and God's saying no, you're out of sync with his name, with his character and who he is. And so it's another thing that we can learn as we grow is, you know, there are some things that ways that I used to pray or things I used to ask for, and it turned out God didn't give it to me. Am I going to be mad at him because he didn't give it to me? 
Or am I going to look at myself and go, boy, what a stupid thing that was to pray for? I've seen that happen a lot of times, certainly. He goes on to say, if you love me, keep my commandments. He says this over and over again throughout this passage. Just in, you know, here it says it there in verse 15. You'll see it down in verse 21. He who has my commandments is the one who loves me. Over in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. Jesus isn't interested in us just saying, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. He wants us to show. There are some people who talk about loving you all the time. And yet, despite that, they don't show it. They don't do what's good for you. They wouldn't lift a finger to help you. Oh, but I love you, I love you. Sometimes it's quit saying it and start doing it. Um, I, did a, I did a memorial service, a funeral for someone um, this last Saturday, and the man had just written, it was, it was Lance's dad, and, and a lot of you know Lance and Carrie, and he had written a letter to his wife. Before, he knew he was going to die, and he wrote this letter, and it was one of the most touching things I've ever read. It was so sweet. It was funny. It was moving. And, and Lance's sister read it at the, at the funeral, and it was just, it was one of those things that you feel like just knocks you off your horse. And I had read it before, and it was powerful. I could see just oozing from what he was writing how much he loved his wife. But it was funny. He said, I've probably, they had been married for, I don't know, 40-some years. And he said in the letter, he said, you know, I've probably only told you about six times in our married life, and five of them were probably in the first month we were married. But he said, I think you always knew it. I loved you. And it was like something about that just touched me like it meant more than somebody who's just always, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's become a, just kind of a little catchphrase now. Love you, love you too. And, but love is demonstrated by action. And love is demonstrated by the way you live your life, not just what you say. It's words, talk, that's cheap. Now, I'm not saying maybe what you guys should do for the next 20 years, don't say you love, and you know, then it'll be really touching at your funeral. No, I, we need to express our love, certainly. But it's not just the words that matter. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I'll pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper or comforter, the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So again, the promise of answered prayer connected with the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is throughout the passage connected with the peace that God is going to give us. And he says, you know, you know the Holy Spirit. He's with you. He's gonna be in you. Later on, we find out that he will also come upon you. We talked about this a bit on, on Sunday morning, but we have those three prepositions. The Holy Spirit is with you. He's with everyone. The Holy Spirit is in you when you're a believer. For the disciples, that happened in the upper room in the, in the end of the book of John as Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And so he breathed on them, and the Holy Spirit came inside them. Ever since then, everyone who accepts the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes inside them. Paul said, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to him. You're none of his. So the Holy Spirit can be with you. He was before you were saved. The Holy Spirit can be in you. He is if you are saved. 
but also we find out after, before Jesus rose, uh, ascended into heaven, after he had risen from the dead, he said, after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll be my witnesses. And so that's the next step where being filled with the Spirit gives you the opportunity and the ability to minister in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit as he's come upon you. And so here he introduces them to the first two concepts. Dwells with you, he will be in you, I'm not going to leave you. <clears throat> Verse 19, a little while longer. And the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Now, that's it for them. They're not going to see me again, but you will. Because since I live, you're going to live. At that day, you'll know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. See, he had just said, I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. But he's saying, you know what? The day is going to come when we will be so close. And is he referring to that growing relationship that we have with him? Probably not. He's probably referring to when we are in heaven and we know even as we are known. He's making that promise that our intimacy with God in heaven is the same kind of intimacy that there is within the Godhead. At that day you'll know. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I'll love him and manifest myself to him. So loving God means obeying Him. Obeying Him means knowing Him. Knowing Him means you want to obey Him more, you want to love Him more, it grows. And that's what Jesus explains to them. Now Judas, not Iscariot, but another Judas, said to Him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? See, they were still looking for Jesus to show Himself as the King of the world, as the Messiah. And they didn't understand. Now he's talking about like there's this secret kind of thing where we're kind of going to see the Father, but it's really going to be through seeing you, and you're going to go away, and someday we'll be with you, and when we grow up, we're going to understand this a lot better. And he's going, um, okay, you're going to show yourself to us. You say we've seen you. We ought to know the Father. But how about the world? Aren't you going to do anything with the world? Aren't you going to show yourselves to the world as well? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so Jesus is saying, you know, don't worry about the world. If they loved me, if they would accept me, they would get to see me too. But don't feel sorry for people who reject me. They can't be in my love because they don't want to be in my love. They won't be able to enter into the kingdom because they've chosen not to. And I really don't believe as much as God wants everyone to repent. He isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that should be our heart too. We should always desire to see everyone that we know get saved because that's what God wants. But at the same time, we shouldn't feel like when it's all over with, when it's all said and done, somehow something goofed up if everyone doesn't get saved. It's just not fair. It's plenty fair. It's all about loving God, and that's an opportunity that everyone has. And so when we get to heaven, we're not going to be pining away about the people who rejected Jesus Christ. We'll be seeing His glory and knowing that people had this opportunity, but if they chose not to love Him... see. If you don't really love God, and if you don't like to worship Him, 
and you don't like to study his word, that just seems really boring to you, then heaven would not be a great place for you. We're going to be for thousands of years singing praise songs. Hey, if you think I can't handle 20 minutes of them, you know, I just don't, I just can't take it. I don't like praising God. What makes you think you're going to like heaven? Oh, I don't think you'll like hell so much either. But the point is, people have that choice. And it would be uncharacteristic of God if he just forced everyone into heaven anyway. Come on, you're going to sit here and you're going to enjoy it. That's not God. He wants the people who love him to be with him. He's given everyone that opportunity. And so, again, he says, I'm not saying this. This is what the Father says. He sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, or the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled or agitated. Same thing that he said in verse 1. Neither let it be afraid. We looked over these verses on Sunday, so if you want, you, if you missed that, you can get the, the CD. I'm not going to go over it again, except to say that God makes this, the Lord makes this promise of peace, and it's the answer to every agitation in our lives. As people in this world, we try to find other ways of finding peace either through becoming fanatics about certain things, pouring our lives into and just becoming nuts about things that mean something to us, creating artificial importance for things that really aren't that important, or by using different means of escaping the pain and the confusion that's in the world. We, we try to find peace. We, we drink a little bit or we smoke dope or we do different things to try to get an artificial peace. And he goes, no, not as the world gives. I have a peace that's much better for you than that. The peace that you seek in the world through illicit relationships or the peace that you seek in the world through thrills and, and excitement or whatever, he's going, no, I've got something that goes way better than that. And it's a peace that comes from my Holy Spirit as he works in your life and brings out that fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. So that's what he is willing us. If, if we aren't feeling it, if we're not sensing his peace, then we're missing something that he promised us. And usually it means that we're taking on things that we shouldn't that we ourselves are worrying about things that aren't our problem. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so, if ours isn't, something's wrong. And it's not that God failed. It's that we decided to pick up baggage along the way. It's not just about how much you do. It's about why you do what you do and the attitude with which you do it. You know, it's funny. I know some people who work, and they're some of the laziest workers. They don't put in more than you know, three hours of, of decent work in an eight-hour day. They can't wait to get away from work. And yet they complain about being tired, just like everyone else does who works their tails off. It's kind of funny. It's a lot of it's not what you do. It's the attitude. And if it's a drudgery for you to do what God has called you to do, then it's a heart problem because he promises that he'll give you that peace. And you're not going to find that peace by working more. You're not going to find that peace by working less. 
It's going to be by receiving from Him that fruit of the Spirit that allows us to be calmed down, to be still and know that He is God, to pay attention to Him, to listen to Him, to wait on Him. That's what it takes. That's what we need. And, and, but He promises peace. So if it's not there, just know. Don't wait for, you know, say, God's failing. Now God's doing it. He's giving you the peace. You just may not be experiencing it, or you may be anesthetizing yourself against it so much that you don't, you know, you're depending on him is working without a net. That's what faith is. But if we're going to have our little safety nets, if we're going to have our little, um, you know, things that will prop us up just in case, a lot of times we'll never sense the peace. Because those crutches can't really help us walk. Until we get rid of them, we're not going to be able to walk either. They'll be in the way. Much like when uh, Paul said in, in Hebrews chapter 12, after seeing these witnesses, let's lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily besets us and let's run with patience or endurance the race that's set before us looking unto Jesus. Let's get everything out of our lives that doesn't fit with what God has for us. And we'll see, the peace will be there. He goes on, let's see, uh, he, he says, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back. If you love me, you'd be happy because I'm going to the Father. And now I told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. He's going, don't worry, this is gonna happen. And you ought to be happy for me for crying out loud, I'm going to heaven. This is something that wouldn't be a bad scripture to read at a Christian's funeral. Look, what are you sad about? I'm in heaven. I'm, I've gone to be with the Lord. What are, you, what are you whining about? How selfish can you get? Although we do mourn when we lose people that we love, but we need to understand it's a selfish mourning. It's certainly not for them. I will no longer talk much with you. It's about, time's about up. For the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. In other words, we're going to have a battle right now, Satan and I, and he doesn't have the advantage, but I'm going to do what I need to do, and so I can't hang around here and talk to you guys much more. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. At this point, they had been in the upper room all this time, had the Last Supper, Jesus washed their feet there in chapter 13, and all of these events now culminate in Jesus saying, okay, let's head out. And so what happens as he teaches them in chapters 15 and 16, he's teaching them probably as they're walking from the upper room up to the Garden of Gethsemane, on, there on the Mount of Olives. And so he's teaching them as they go, or perhaps they arrive there and he's teaching them there sitting in the garden before his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. But I kind of like, you know, when he's talking about his peace, he's talking about trusting in him, I kind of like that he says at the end, come on, let's go from here. Arise, go from here. And I think sometimes that's what God wants us to hear. We can sit and listen and learn and speculate and study. At some point, Jesus is going to say, you know, you hear what I'm saying. You're starting to understand it. Now let's get up and go somewhere. Let's actually do something. Let's not just sit here and vegetate. Let's just not sit here and meditate. Let's get up and do something. And I think sometimes that might be the word that God has for us. Okay, you're learning, you're but how about let's just get up and do something. Let's go somewhere. 
Let's move forward. If your life is in the same place that it was five years ago, basically you haven't gotten anywhere since then, something's wrong. Actually, if you haven't grown in the last six months, you're backsliding. It's as simple as that. God wants us to get up and go, to live our lives for Him, not just to learn things. The only reason He wants us to learn things is because it'll change us so that we can have an impact on others. And so, let's get up and go. It would be a great way to end the study, but we still have a half an hour and a chapter to go. So <clears throat> Now Jesus goes into chapter 15, this picture of the vine and the branches, passage that I'm sure you're familiar with, but we'll look through it. I'm the true vine. Now, if he says he's the true vine, it means that there are other places you can plug in that aren't. They're false vines. But I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Jesus is basically, well, he's using the picture of a vine. And you know how it works with plants. Sometimes it can get overgrown in one area and you need to trim it back and you'll have a lot more fruit that way. A wild vine will never grow as, as much fruit ultimately as a vine that's tended and taken care of. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, you know, there are going to be some times when you just need to be clipped a bit, when you need to be trimmed back and pruned. But the reason why God is doing that is so that you'll bear more fruit. He says bear fruit, bear more fruit, bear much fruit. You see that progression in those verses that we just read. And it's God's desire that we become more fruitful that we become much fruitful. And so don't be satisfied to say, well, I'm seeing enough fruit in my life that I know I'm a Christian. But instead, our attitude should be, am I becoming more effective? Am I serving God in ways growing closer to Him, growing in Him, in ways that I can really detect my progress? Because that's what He wants to do. Now, how does He do that? He trims us, he prunes us, he clips us. And so often, as he's hacking away at our limbs, our branches, we feel like, no, don't do that. In fact, I'd suggest to you that probably most of our prayers, if you lined them all up, we're probably praying that God would quit pruning us. We're probably wishing that he would just give us a break and let us grow wild. The truth is, what he's doing for us is for our good and to bring about fruit in our lives. And sometimes I think it would be better for us to say, okay, go ahead and trim me, than to go every time I feel some piece of pain in my life to go, what's that? What's going on with that? Hey, this is what God uses. It's how he works. He, he does trim us. He takes things away from us that we think we need so that we can find out we don't need them. 
He takes away from us opportunities or relationships that we may be depending on, that we may be counting on, so that he can go, see, you're okay without that. You really didn't need it. Sometimes he'll take someone's job away or make a shift in their career or in some other way cause us to be in a situation where we're kind of insecure. And it's our choice to either say, God, you can do what you want, or to go, what's wrong here? And if we resist his pruning enough, he just might let us have what we want. And that's a mistake. It's interesting to watch. You can find out what people really value by what they get upset about. And, you know, there can be one article in the newspaper about Orange County real estate values. And experts have been saying for months, people from universities have been saying, real estate values are going to plummet, the bubble's going to burst. And so everyone who owns a house is scared to death. And, and people who are thinking about getting a house, oh, I'm not going to get a house, that's too scary, it's going to go down. You know, for one thing, it's foolish, and, and most of the time these kinds of predictions are wrong. Uh, if you look at the facts, if you study it enough, you realize that that unemployment is better than it's ever been in Orange County, which is a determiner of, of real estate values. There aren't a bunch of places where you can build new houses, and chances are it's going to be fine. But the point is, if you're worried about real estate values, then you're depending a little bit too much on that house. You know, it might be good for you just to have your house value plummet a bit. <gasps> don't, Dave, don't say that. God might be listening. No, you know, if he... <laughs> And I own a house. If that's what God wants to do to get me to go, oh, good, you know, I have much less to worry about. I found out, you know, it's still the same house, even if it's worth $400,000 less. It's okay. I'm going to still survive. And there are so many things in our lives that happen that way. God just goes, let me trim you a little here and just see how you're doing. There's something weird about somebody who isn't willing to be improved. But a lot of us just don't want our lives to get better. We don't want to get closer to the Lord. We go, I like myself the way I am. The problem with people who like themselves the way they are, they're going to get worse. They don't ever stay the same. If you don't improve, if you're not growing, then you're getting older. You're dying. He not busy being born is busy dying, some song said. I can't remember who wrote the song, probably someone really bad, but because those are the songs you remember. <laughs> but uh, no, it was Bob Dylan, so he's okay. He's a Christian once in a while. But uh, <laughs> if we don't look at our lives and go, God, I want to change. I want to grow. God, I don't want to settle in 2005 for what I had in 2004. If we don't do that, we're going downhill. It's a simple fact. And so God wants to do his pruning, let's let him do it. Now, how about somebody who doesn't abide? That's the, the growth that he's talking about. But how about the person who doesn't abide? And this brings up a great question that people ask often about if you're a Christian, does that mean that you're always going to be a Christian? Does that mean that you can't, you know, that you can't lose your salvation once you're a Christian? It's a good question. We'll touch on it a little bit throughout this chapter and, and the next, but I'm a little nervous about telling someone, now as much as I rejoice in the fact that nobody's able to pluck me out of the Father's hand and things like that, yet what's he talking about? 
You can dream away all you want and say, oh, don't worry. You know, he's talking about we're the vine, he's the branches, he trims us, and if we don't grow fruit, we get cut off and thrown in the fire, but it probably just means we're going to have to spend some warm days in Palm Springs. I don't know. To me, being cut off and cut in the, and thrown in the fire concerns me a bit, especially when it's Jesus who's talking. So what does it mean to abide in him? It's to stay as close to him as we can get. Is it possible for us to then not abide in him and be cut off and removed if we decide to, re, you know, re, to reject him and to rebel against him so much? I don't know. There's a lot of scriptures that sound like that to me. There are other scriptures that sound like it isn't possible. So what do I do? I abide in Jesus. I don't want to see how far away I can get from him and still be saved and still go to heaven. Because how do I know? And there are a lot of people that that's kind of the idea. I know God doesn't really want us to do this, but if I do it, is he going to forgive me and will it be okay? There are even people who take their own lives and they have a question of, well, will I go to heaven? Well, yeah, I mean, I really believe that you will if you're a Christian and you kill yourself. I think you're crazy and I think God understands that. But at the same time, what if I'm wrong? You really want to take a chance. People say, okay, the Bible says that adulterers can't inherit the kingdom of God. So how about if you're kind of an adulterer, but not really completely, strictly by Clintonian definitions, an adulterer, it's just kind of, you know, what can you do? Can you do that and still be a Christian? Well, let's see. Can you do it every day and still be a Christian? Probably not. Can you do it like once and still be a Christian? Yeah, probably. How about like once a month? And we start to get into this kind of thinking that we want to know how far can we get to the line before we've stepped over the line. And, and I just suggest to you, the, the question is, the issue for us should be, how close can I get to God? How far away can I get from, from sin? You see this a lot of times with drinking. And I've told you before, I'm not one of these people that says, you know, that if you drink a glass of wine or you drink a beer once in a while that you're going to go to hell for it. So Dave, then how much can you drink? And if you're not supposed to get drunk with wine, but you should be filled with the Spirit, if I'm drunk once in a while, I'm not filled with the Spirit, I'm still saved, right? Yeah. Well, how about if I'm like drunk most of the time, but just kind of drunk? And we start to think like this, and it's like, hey, that's not the way we should be thinking. You know, we shouldn't say, when we get married, we shouldn't say to our spouse, you know, I promise to be pretty consistent with you. And really, I don't know, if you, like 20 days a month for me to really love you, would that do? Is that okay? How about 15? And we start bargaining like that. We go, wait a minute, you don't even love me. And if we start asking that question of how far away can we get and still be okay, to me, I think we're starting to prove that maybe we're not there at all. You don't do those sorts of things. That's not the way a relationship works. Hey, will you be my best friend? Sure, I'd love to be your best friend. Well, how often do you think best friends should talk? Because I want to make sure I do the bare minimum. If I call you like once a month, are we still best friends? Maybe a couple of emails? How about like automatic emails that periodically update? You know, no, I don't think you want to be my friend. And I don't think I want to be your friend. 
And so when we start to look at these issues and go, well, to abide, how much do you have to abide? What if you're like cut off, but there's still a little stump and you're still, don't even go there. <laughs> abide in Jesus. This is what every time someone asks Pastor Chuck about eternal security or once saved, always saved, he always says, I believe that I am eternally secure because I abide in Christ. And I believe that too. Now, it may be that you can take it even further. Maybe you could have just lived your life like hell your whole life, and if you went forward at a harvest crusade, maybe you still get to heaven. I hope that's true. But I'm not comfortable guaranteeing you that that's the case. So the idea is let's abide. Let's just stay. If we stay, we know we're secure. There's no way that a person who abides in Christ is going to lose their salvation, okay? And so that's what Jesus is saying. The important thing is to be plugged in with him. Now, there in verse 5... For without me, you can do nothing. One of the most important verses in the Bible. For us to understand, if we're not plugged into him, there's nothing we can do that matters ultimately. Without him, we are completely helpless. Now, Pastor Chuck just recently, someone called us on the radio and asked for our, our life verses. And I, I said mine was First Chronicles 26, 18, which is at the par bar westward, four at the causeway, and two at par bar. And you know, I, I don't know what it means either, but it's a great verse. But, uh, <laughs> but Chuck said his, he said, I have two verses. And he, said, he quoted John 15, 5 here, without me you can do nothing. And then he said the other one is Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And to me, those two verses together, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, no limits. But without him, I can't do anything. If you can keep those two ideas in mind, if you can keep those two scriptures in your heart, you'll be set. You'll be doing well. Without him, nothing. With him, everything. See, there's no need for insecurity because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But there's also no need for pride because without him, I can't do anything. It's a perfect balance. And so I, I would even encourage you, if you have a pen, right there next to verse 5, write uh, Philippians 4.13. Underline them both. Over on Philippians 4.13, write John 15.5. Because you put these two together and it just says a mouthful. So again, abide. Father be glorified, you'll bear much fruit. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, love commandments, love commandments, constantly through here. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you'll love one another as I have loved you. See, Jesus is making this connection, and he does often. And again, remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. When you're loving, you're going to be obeying. When you're loving and obeying, you're also going to experience joy. You're also going to have that peace that he promises. See, it, it all goes together. Now, a lot of times when someone's exhorting us to love, we feel like, oh, man, I have to love. But that's not it. He's going, if you love, you'll have joy. Now, what does that tell you about a person who doesn't have joy in their life? Ooh, love and obedience might be missing if the joy is missing. Something to ask ourselves. 
Again, this is my commandment that you'll love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. This intimacy, this relationship based in love that expresses joy, that brings us close to God, that brings us into the fellowship of the Trinity itself, closer to the God, God in all of his entirety, who he is, as we follow him, as we obey his commandments, as, as his love is perfected in our lives, he said, then you're going to discover my commandment that you love, it's based on sacrifice. And normally you don't say, lay your life down so that you can have joy. Give your life up. Give your life for a friend, if that's what you want, joy in your life. But the truth is, and as Jesus says here, it's been proven so many times that if you're not giving yourself to others, if you're not pouring your life out, if you really aren't going out of your way, funny thing is, you're not going to have joy. You're not going to feel love. There's no way. It's not going to happen because love is sacrifice. It's, it, it's just vital to the concept. Over in Romans it says, but God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus is here driving the point home that he already illustrated in chapter 13 when he washed their feet. And he's saying, if you're not giving of yourself, if you're not involved in some sort of ministry, if you're not doing something for the Lord, you'll never really have joy. Now, it might be something as simple as just giving money to support a missionary and having that feeling of just, wow, this is so exciting to be a part of what God is doing. But God may be calling you to a greater sacrifice for your friends, for your family, in some way to pour your life out, to love in that way. But just make a note of it in the back of your head, and when you're thinking, I don't know, the joy's missing, there's something missing in my life, maybe God's calling you to make some sacrifice. Maybe he's calling you to let go of something. Perhaps he is calling you to be used by him in some greater way. And if you do that, you'll find a joy that you can never find living a selfish Southern California lifestyle. I know that for a fact. Very few people are really truly fulfilled, no matter how wealthy they are, if they're not giving of themselves. And I don't always know how to explain that, but I know that sometimes when I am there for someone who can't help me a lick, and after I'm able to just minister to them, it's amazing. I feel like I've just got a, a shot of vitamin B12 or something. It's just, it's energizing to do something for others who can't do for themselves, even if what you do isn't that big of a deal. It's just fulfilling and joyful, and you, feel, and you sense that love just from serving, just from making sacrifices. The devil tells us, no, hang on to everything you've got. You can't afford to spare any of your time, any of your resources, any of your heart. Be selfish. Be Scrooge McDuck. Sit there in your cellar and count your money. But... God says, no, actually, if you try to gain your life, you're going to lose it. But if you try to lose your life, if you try to give yourself away, you're going to gain life in a way that, that you'll never know otherwise. I, 
this uh, Sunday night, uh, Jeannie Martin is going to talk at the Missions Fellowship about short-term missions trips. And I think one of the best things, if you've never done it, is to latch on to some short-term mission trip. Go somewhere where the people have next to nothing. Um, Kimberly, who's a member of our body, one thing she does is set up these trips, and she's always going somewhere. She's going to be going with us next month down to Cambodia and Thailand, and then she's going off to Afghanistan to teach some English for a period of time in, like, Afghanistan refugee camps, a place where it's, it's kind of crazy for a girl to go there. seems like, wow, you sure? But I'm going to tell you something. You go do something like that and realize how much people can appreciate things that today here everyone would take for granted, and you might discover something about yourself that you've never discovered otherwise. You might find out that as you give yourself a little bit, it's so rewarding that you think this is one of the greatest secrets in life. People who don't know this are getting so ripped off, are missing out so much on what God could be doing through their lives if we just give a bit. And so again, Jesus is letting them know this is where joy comes, through dying, through sacrifice. It's, again, if you've never done it, I'd encourage you to come Sunday night and hear a bit about it. I'd also encourage you sometime to talk to Steve Bailey, who kind of heads up our missions ministry, to talk to Kimberly, who's always doing it. They can always set you up with a trip. And it doesn't have to be some expensive, exotic place. It can be something close and, and, and uh, you know, simple for your schedule. But to get outside yourself, just to give of yourself a bit. It isn't that these people who do these things are these super spiritual saints. It's really not. They aren't. It's that they've discovered how rewarding it is to give of yourself. And this isn't just in missions. It's in all kinds of areas of life. It's just realizing giving is what will end up causing you to receive the joy that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your lives. And you'll get to know God more when you do that, obviously. Verse 18 if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. He's preparing them for the fact that it's not going to be easy. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Whoops, did I? How could I skip verses 16 and 17? That's kind of a major passage, sorry. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. Tied into the middle of the idea of sacrificing yourself, of giving of yourself, of saying, okay, I love you and I'm going to show it by giving myself, laying my life on the line for you. Then Jesus comes up with this statement, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. A tough statement to deal with for anyone, really. It's, this verse is probably most central to those people who believe in Calvinism. The doctrines of Calvinism, and they're usually as opposed to Arminianism, and I'll try not to go too deeply into detail here, but Calvinists, well, Calvinism is described by five points, and it's called the five points of Calvinism, and and it's also called the Calvin's tulip, T-U-L-I-P, because each key word is a reference to one of the five points of Calvinism. First point of Calvinism is total depravity. Total depravity means that you're completely lost and there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. 
Now, is that right or is it wrong? It depends how you define it. Most Calvinists say that you're so depraved that you can't even choose to accept Jesus Christ. Now, I have a problem with that. The Bible certainly doesn't teach that at all. That's not a part of depravity. We're totally depraved because we can't save ourselves. But there's nothing in the Bible that says we can't respond to him. If he calls us to respond, we can respond. We can also reject him, of course. So first point of Calvinism, total depravity, it's okay, but you have to be careful how you define it. Now, the second point of Calvinism is unconditional election. And what that means is God chooses you, and it has nothing to do with anything that he sees in you. God doesn't say, okay, you're going to be a good person, so I'm going to choose you. It's just God chooses you without any conditions, nothing that led him to making that choice. There's some truth to that, and yet at the same time, the Bible tells us that whom he foreknew, those he predestined, the fact is that God always knew whether you would accept him or not. And if that was a real choice, then how could God not know it? How could he make a choice before knowing what you already knew? See, God always knows what we're going to do. And he calls us to respond. And so, again, unconditional election, it has an element of truth to it. But at the same time, if you take it too far, it's absurd. It puts the point where we don't have a choice. And it also puts it down to where God somehow can't always have been omniscient. Because if God has been forever omniscient, he always knew what you were going to choose. And he can't put that out of his mind in order to choose you, okay? Then, uh, let's see, that's the U. The, the L is limited atonement. That means that Jesus only died for some. He only died for the elect, the ones who were chosen. That's the point of Calvinism that I have the greatest problem with. Because the Bible repeatedly says that he died for the world. God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, that he gave his only begotten son. It also talks about the fact that, that it, not for us only, but for the sins of the world that he died. He took upon himself the sins of the world. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All what? All the elect? No. Jesus, weeping over Jerusalem, say, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. How could Jesus only die for some and then be bummed at the people who aren't saved? How could what Peter said be true, that he isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? If you're a Calvinist, you have to say, oh, all the elect must come to repentance. Redefine what the Bible says. So limited atonement, a big problem. The I in tulip is irresistible grace. And I have a problem with this, too, although I understand it. Irresistible grace says when God chooses you, you can't help it. Now, I think for most of us who are saved, we had a feeling like, man, it was just, as C.S. Lewis said in Surprised by Joy, I felt like I was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. And it does seem like he so showered us with his love that we almost had no choice but we did have a choice, and people reject him every day. And the problem with irresistible grace is if that's true, then the people who don't accept Jesus, it's just because he didn't choose them. He could have given them his irresistible grace, but he only picked certain people for it. And therefore, the eternity, the eternal um, end of every person is just determined by God. People who sin, people who reject him, people who go to hell, well, they're just sorry. You just weren't chosen. 
And the Bible certainly doesn't teach that. If that's the case, then God's responsible for all the sin in the world. Then the things that happen in a fallen world, like we can't rightly say that, oh, it was a tragedy, the tsunamis that hit over in southern Asia, because it was God's will, his sovereignty. He wanted to do that. Those kids that got washed away from their parents, yep, God's plan. See, the truth is, man, this world is really messed up, and it's messed up because God gave us choices. We made the wrong choices. As a result, the world has fallen. But again, irresistible grace. The last one is perseverance of the saints, and what that means is if you're really saved, you'll hang in there. If you fall away from God, you never really had it in the first place. An interesting concept. I don't completely disagree with it. I'm just not sure. Now, in 1 John chapter 2, he says, talking about people who had fallen away, they went out from among us because they weren't really of us. They had stuck around. It would have shown that they were of us, but by leaving, they showed they weren't of us. So I don't have a huge quarrel with perseverance of the saints, but um, I'm not 100% sold on it. So again, we come to this passage, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. It sounds like he's going, look, you didn't accept me. I just accepted you. You didn't do anything at all, but... I picked you, and you can't do a thing about it. And I can understand if this verse was the only verse we had in the Bible, how Calvinists would just say, yep, some people are chosen for salvation, some people are chosen for hell, too bad, can't do anything about it, it's just the way it is. And so Calvinists, when they, when they witness, they won't say, Jesus died for you, because I don't know if you're, if you're chosen or not, maybe Jesus didn't die for you. I, they don't say, Jesus loves you. Well, I don't know if Jesus loves you or not. And that's consistent Calvinism. It's also just folly and cruelty because the Bible teaches the opposite. So what do you do with you did not choose me, but I chose you? I don't know about you, but I feel like when I accepted Jesus Christ, I did choose to follow him. Now, he was drawing me, no doubt about it. He made the first move. And for me personally, it was God just spoke to me and said, it's now or never. Choose me or be lost forever. And I chose to listen to him. Now, but he doesn't say, you, I chose you first and then you chose me. He says, I, didn't, I chose you, you didn't choose me. So what does that mean? Now, we look at other scriptures like in John chapter 1, it says, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. That sounds like you receive him, then he gives you the power to become the son of God. Well, the Holy Spirit's always working, wooing, drawing, and God is inviting. But what Jesus is saying here by you didn't choose me, but I chose you, he's not at all saying you were stuck with me and you had nothing to say about it. Because if you look over in... Um, well, we're running out of time. You can look it up later yourself. Over there in chapter 6 of John, Jesus, uh, I think it's verse 70. It's right there towards the end. Jesus said that he had chosen the 12. One of the 12 was Judas. Later on, he's going to say in chapter 16, I know who I chose, talking about Judas. And so Jesus himself said, I chose Judas, and he's gone He's not a Christian. So his choosing is not him saying, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, because Judas wasn't sure of that. He, it says that 
The devil came into him, and this fulfills Scripture. And, and, and he told, in chapter 17, we'll see Jesus says to God, I haven't lost anybody that you gave me except for Judas. Lost him. Well, that's one out of 12. So how many people are lost who were, who were at one point chosen? I don't know. But the thing is, Jesus chose the disciples, and clearly what he's making reference to is he looked around and he said, you, follow me. But they didn't have to do it. Irresistible grace? Now, then what do you make of the rich young ruler who Jesus loved, who Jesus talked to him and said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me, and he didn't. He walked away sadly. What's the difference between him telling the rich young ruler to follow him and him telling Peter or Andrew or John or James to follow him? He makes the offer. He chooses them, but they don't have to go. Hey, remember uh, just a couple of years ago, there was a quarterback who was drafted and was, was going to be picked by the San Diego Chargers. And he and his family got together. They're a great football family. And, and they said, I'm not going to play for you. Well, you can be chosen and still not accept that. You still have to go along. You still have to make that decision yourself for Jesus Christ. Now, has he chosen you? I don't know. Has he called you? Has he given you that opportunity? If he has, accept him. Now, when we get to heaven, we may find out it's more complicated than that. But I think we need to be careful not to yank something like this out of context. And if clearly the Gospel of John is the one where Jesus talks about choosing, 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 let's look at all that he says. And again, his emphasis is, here isn't on this is why you're saved. His emphasis is in the reason why I chose you is I wanted you to bear fruit. I wanted you to fulfill the calling that you have on your life. And so I think it's a mistake to make this all about eternal security. And, and then he goes on to talk about how the world's going to hate you because it hates me. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. In other words, when I came and spoke to them, they figured out that they were wrong. And now as a result, they're in greater condemnation, greater sin, because they've actually rejected me. And so because of that, they're kind of upset about it. Because of that, they hate me and they're going to hate you. But this happened, verse 25, that the word might be fulfilled, which was written in their law, they hated me without a cause. No reason. They just hate you. Because you have something that they want, but they don't want to go the route that they have to go in order to get it. And again, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth. Notice how often the truth, the word of God is tied in with the Holy Spirit. Fascinating who proceeds from the Father, as Jesus said, he proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He goes, I've got this covered. Everything's under control. Stick with me, and you're going to see it's going to work out, and it always does. But it's all about Jesus. That's what he's saying. Don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus He's the way, the truth, the life. He's preparing a place for us. Heaven is not very far away. He sent the Holy Spirit to work within our lives. He takes his word and, and makes it a part of our life. He molds and shapes us. He trims us and prunes us so that we can go from bearing fruit to more fruit to much fruit. He wants us to grow, and he'll make it happen if we let him. But he's not just going to force his will on us. 
He wants us to be in fellowship with Him, utilizing our own will to place ourselves inside His will, to say in the same way that you and the Father and the Spirit are all inside each other, I want to jump into that. I want some of that. I want to live my life that way. Let's pray. Lord, you're enough. Lord Jesus, we're sorry when we act like and think that we need more than just what you've given us. When we act dissatisfied, like you've held back something that we think you really ought to be given us. Lord, help us to be satisfied with you. Help us to see you and say, that's enough, that's sufficient. We've seen you, we've seen the Father, we want to be like you, we want to be in you, we'll obey you, we'll love you. Help us to remember every day, it's all about you, it's not about us. And so God, work in our lives, all that you want to do to make us who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.